Well, we are going through the book of Acts right now. And today we've reached the halfway point in chapter 14, as well as a significant turning point that showcases the fact that the gospel was never meant to be just for the Jews, but for all nations. You see, in the first 13 chapters of Acts, what we've seen is a lot of evangelism being done by Christians who are spreading the gospel. Yes, but up until now, what's actually been happening is Christians going into the synagogues and talking to people who already have a Judeo-Christian framework in place because they already believe in God and believe in the Bible. They just didn't understand the details of who Jesus is and why he had to come and die and rise again. But today, for the first time, we're going to see Christians trying to engage People who do not believe in the Bible and perhaps know nothing about what it says. Which I hope you realize is much more where we are today in America. This is no longer a Judeo-Christian nation, my friends. So this is a great chapter for us. This is a great chapter for us to dig into. Because today is going to help us. Most Americans, think about it. As we seek to engage our culture, you are not speaking to someone who is already very well informed about what the Bible says. Those days are over. The average American does not even know the basic storyline of the Bible, the main characters of the Bible, or the big themes of the Bible as to who God is, who we are in light of who God is, and what he's done for us. So what are we going to do? We need to do what the Christians in Acts chapter 14 did. So that's why we're going to dig into this for the next couple weeks. There's so much good stuff here. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts 14. And you follow along as I begin reading in verse 1. Acts 14 verse 1. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews to and spoke so that a great multitude, both of Jews and the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore, they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding region. And they were preaching the gospel there. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Now, when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas, they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, men, we We, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you. And we preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God. Who made the heaven, the earth, the sea and all things that are in them. Who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness. In that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons. Filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there. And having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul. Now, make a note of that. 
Crowds are easily swayed. Don't, don't be overly joyful when they love you. And don't be surprised when that same crowd can be turned just like that from trying to worship them to trying to kill them. Yeah, that's what her people are like. So they stoned him and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord to whom they had believed. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. Now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. So what can we learn from this chapter that could help us reach people for Christ in a very pagan culture that does not have a framework in place of who God is, what the Bible says. There's so much here. I'm just going to give you two points today. And Lord willing, I'll give you some more in the weeks ahead. Here's the first thing I want you to get. Number one, you need to be absolutely clear that salvation is by grace alone and not works. If you're sitting there saying, duh, don't just duh. If you understand that, God, by his spirit, enabled you to understand that because people don't get that. And you can't take people to places you've not been yourself or places that you are securely settled into. I hope you realize this concept of salvation by grace alone and not works is so foreign to human thinking and human internal hardwiring. That's why I believe Luke describes the gospel the way he does for us in verse three. Look at how he describes the gospel in verse three. Therefore, they stayed there a long time speaking boldly in the Lord who was bearing witness to the word of his, say it, say it louder, grace. He's using that phrase as a summary for the gospel. He says, this is what we've been preaching. The word of his grace, God's grace. God came down to give us grace. Jesus came to give us grace, not to start another religion that tells you what to do or gives you a list. Grace, the word of his grace, the word of his grace. And I want you to realize it was just as hard for them to grasp this concept of salvation by grace as it is for us today. Because by nature from birth, we are hardwired for achievement, earning, merit, works. Tell me, sometimes I get emails still from people in our church family. Love you. Who say, why do you go on and on and on about grace? All right, already, I get it. And so I reply back, shut up. No, I want to, but I'm a pastor, so I don't. So I say out loud what I want to say, and then I type something different. And I say, dude or dudette, if you get it, drop to your knees and praise God you get it. Because people don't get it. I have to keep saying this. And, and news alert. I'm trying to preach what the Bible does. The Bible just goes on and on about grace. So I'm going to go on and on about grace. Because it's not like, oh, I got it. What else? No, I got it and I still need 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 it. This is so foreign to us. Salvation by grace and not works. Which is the reason that Paul uses the word mystery six times in the book of Ephesians. Realize that six times in the book of Ephesians, he uses the word mystery as he's unpacking the implications of this mind blowing gospel of grace. And he's not using the word mystery the way we do. When we use the word mystery, it's usually to indicate something like it's a series of clues because something is so complicated and hard to figure out. That's not how he's using the word mystery. Paul is using the word mystery to describe the gospel of grace 
because it is so unexpected and contrary to what we would have thought. It startles us. It shocks us. It arrives in a way that we're like, that's not how I thought salvation would be. That's why you hear sometimes people literally will say to you as I try to share the gospel, it can't be that easy. That can't be how it works, right? It can't be. It can't be. It can't be. It can't be. Folks, the gospel is not mysterious because it's so hard to understand. It's mysterious because it comes to us in such an undeserving, unmerited, free way. And that's like no other religion. So I keep trying to tell you that so that you won't just mingle in with the rest of the crowd out there in the world thinking, all right, I'm a Christian and I offer this flavor, but there's Hindus and there's Muslims and there's all kinds of other ways. Folks, this is like no other religion. And Jesus didn't come to start another religion. People have always been very religious. People by nature are worshipers. They are religious and they worship. He came to do something radically different. A gospel of grace and a relationship with the living God through his son, Jesus Christ. He comes down to us and brings a word of grace. That's like no other religion, which is why Paul then summarizes the gospel in the book of Ephesians chapter two, when he says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. Say those three words with me, not of works. Say, I can't work for it. Turn to the person next to you and say, you can't work for it. I like you, but you can't work for it. Not of works, not of works, not of works, not of works, not of works. Why? Because he knows us so well. Last phrase. Lest anyone should. If we had anything to do with it, we would boast about it. We're hardwired for pride and boasting and we're glory robbers. It is a word of his grace. Oh, if we're going to reach a pagan culture, we have got to be clear on salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus. Because when pagans do think about religion, and they actually do, they think works. They think works. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. Give me a list and I'll check the boxes. Tell me how high to jump and I'll get there. But notice it's a bunch of chest thumping. Me, me, me. Tell me what to do. And there is something to do. You say, Brad, is there nothing to do? Oh, there is something to do. When people say it can't be that easy. Here's what's not easy about the word of his grace. You have to be willing to completely recognize I could never Get there. I could never keep the Ten Commandments. I could never be good enough. I could never earn it or merit it or deserve it. Oh, God, have mercy on me. Oh, say it louder. See, the only way grace is amazing is when you see yourself as a sinner. Otherwise, you would prefer works. You have to humble yourself. And that's what's hard. People keep wanting to be a part of the equation. Oh, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. If we're going to reach a pagan culture, we need to push away from religion and recognize this is like nothing else. And we've got to be clear on it in our own lives and then communicate it clearly. Now, don't be discouraged. You can explain salvation by grace alone to someone and you still hear them say back there's something that's works oriented. Don't walk away thinking, am I that bad of a communicator? That's how hard the human heart is. So communicate it and don't lose heart when you hear them say something right back that's contrary to what you just explained. I'll never forget one Easter Sunday, someone that I met right over here in the aisle before the service. And, you know, I was glad to see them. It was kind of their first time here. And I was like, oh, wow, yay. Because I've been praying for them. 
And we had a conversation. And then I preached my little heart out. It's Easter, right? I try to make it a simple message about Jesus, salvation by grace alone through him, that he died for our sins and he rose again. I I thought I'd made it very clear. And this person came up to me right after and said, oh, Brad, if anybody deserves, deserves to go to heaven, it's you. I was like, how have I failed? Was it that unclear? Was it that bad? Was it that confused? Where did I talk about works? And I said back, oh, no, 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 no. Nobody's going to heaven that deserves it or by works. It's Jesus alone. And they said back, oh, yes, 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 yes. But you're way ahead of the rest of us. (laughs) What is going on there? The human heart will not lay down works until God's grace shows you God's grace. So here's what I've decided at this point in my ministry in life. It takes the grace of God to understand and accept the grace of God. It's that foreign to us, but it's that amazing. That's why that word mystery does not just explain the gospel. It will explain how you live. When you realize it's a word of grace that has changed my life, nothing that I've done, when that grips you that he saved you, By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ plus nothing? Oh, then the word mystery describes how you stay amazed and overwhelmed that he saved you. Amazing will stay in front of grace. Some of you wonder why you've just kind of like, yeah, yeah, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I know he saved me. If you're saying it that way, something's wrong. You, the amazing will stay in front of grace when you continue to realize, oh my goodness. He saw nothing in me that drew him to me while I was a sinner, while I was an enemy, while I was dead in trespasses and sins. He came to me and claimed me and breathed life into me and opened my deaf ears and unstopped my blind eyes. I have nothing to do but praise him for the rest of my life. Grace is amazing. But some of you, it's not because you think, yeah, I mean, heaven, hell, ask Jesus in your heart. I did it. What's wrong with you? You stupid? Like you want to burn forever? If that's your approach, you're not reading your Bible. The fact that you get it is because God worked in you. It's God, 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 God. And then you'll say, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. And you'll stay amazed by grace. But let me show you something else you need to expect if we're going to reach a pagan culture. Number two, you should expect hostility and opposition in the midst of great opportunities. All that together, folks. Listen to me. The hostility today is no greater than it's ever been. If you're one of those Christians that's running around like, oh, 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 it's so hard today. That only means all you're doing is watching the news and reading Christian blogs. And you're not reading your Bible. And you're not reading old books from dead people. You should read old books from dead people. Christian dead people. And you would have a different perspective. These are not the worst times that Christians have ever lived. This is not new, you guys. The hostility today is no greater than it's ever been. Look at verse 2 because it sounds just like today. Verse 2 sounds like it's describing today. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Right? That's what we got going on today. He's like, I'm a Christian. I'm trying to be so nice. But people are lying about me. They're slandering me. We're being presented as haters now just because whenever we try to teach the Bible, now you're a hater. I know it's hard. But folks, I... You can say it's hard, just don't say it's new. Hard, not new. Hard, not new. Hard, not new. This is how it's been. As long as there's been Christians living in a fallen, broken world. This is not a new thing. It is absolutely a hard thing, but not a new thing. Here's the deal. God is going to keep saving people. Hallelujah. He does the heavy lifting. We don't have to make anything happen. And he's saving them today, you guys. He's still saving people today, despite how much they hate us, despite the slander, despite the misrepresentation, despite the rhetoric. You know, Islam ramps it up, starts beheading Christians on the beach. What happens? More of their people come to faith in Christ. 
I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's fun. But folks, you cannot stop God from saving people. God is going to do what God promised to do. And in the midst of it, there will be opposition. There's always been a big but in the midst of what God's doing. And I'm talking about one T on the end of that. Look at it. Like we love verse one. Look at verse one of Acts 14. It's like, oh my goodness, look at the end. A great multitude of Jews and Greeks believed. Verse two, what's it start with? Say it louder. But, bunch of people believed, but unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned. That's how it was then. That's how it is now. That's how it will always be. But it doesn't stop build Jesus from building his church and saving men and women from every walk of life. Opposition in the midst of opportunity. In fact, this chapter tells us something very helpful. Not fun, but helpful. The reason this opposition and adversity and tribulation is not new is because it's essential. It's not a new thing, but it is an essential thing. Like, Brad, what are you talking about? Well, look at verse 22. Look at the end of verse 22. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Does that sound optional to you? I don't know about you, but there's two words in that verse that get my attention. Must and many. In other words, we must go through tribulation, not we might. If you don't have the formula, how to name it, claim it. If you don't read the right best-selling books, you oh, you might go through some tribulation. But if you get a hold of how to avoid that, you don't have to. No, no, we must. And it's not just a few. Many, must, many, must, many, must, many. I, I know, this. me doing this is why I'm not on Christian cable television. It's not just because I'm bald and don't have the hair that I can sweep back. This you won't find on Christian cable television. This you will not find in best-selling Christian books at the top of the chart. But you will find it in this best-selling book. It's all through the scriptures that it's not an accident. You will suffer tribulation. You will go through trials. Count it all joy when, not if, James 1. But Christians in America especially keep trying to... To put together a different message because it's what we so wish was true. But it's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, this same Greek word for tribulations, Paul uses when he writes to the Christians in Thessalonica. And he says this in 1 Thessalonica 3. That no one should be shaken by these afflictions. That word affliction is the same word that gets translated tribulations in our... No one should be shaken by these afflictions for you yourselves know... Huh, that we are appointed to this. That doesn't sound random, does it? We're appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that you would suffer tribulation. He used the word twice. And see that word for tribulation or affliction or distress, those are the ways it gets translated, is a Greek word that means to be Pressed or put under pressure or oppression, whether it's emotional, mental, physical, social, economic, it's oppressing. It's, it's to be put under pressure. Don't you often in this life feel like I'm under pressure? I'm under pressure. Whether it's a health thing, a financial thing, a family thing, a job thing, it, there's always a thing, right? Pressure, affliction, distress. And, may, and so maybe you're thinking, but Brad, why does it say we must go through tribulation? Is it because God can't stop it? He's not in control. He wants to, but he can't. He doesn't want his kids to go through that, but he couldn't stop it. God got the, um, Satan got the upper hand at that moment. Does the Bible teach that? Louder. No. 
then why in the world with a good, sovereign, wise, loving God allow and even say some of this? It's appointed. It's appointed. It's appointed. We must. Through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Well, here's what doesn't get taught on Christian cable television and doesn't land in best-selling Christian books. What the Bible actually teaches is that hardship, adversity, pressure, suffering, trials are what grow us and make us more like Jesus. I wish I could tell you, just read your Bible every day and you'll become like Jesus. It'll help. Please don't not read your Bible. But it's reading your Bible. Because here's the other thing. When I'm under pressure, when I'm afflicted, when I'm distressed, when I'm distraught, it causes me to read my Bible differently. New things don't show up that weren't there before. Guess what? I see things I just hadn't noticed before. And I'm not just reading his word. I'm feeding because I desperately need a word. I need a promise. I'm clinging to his word in a way I was not. And I'm picking up theological rocks I said I believed. And my lip theology shifts into life theology. And my roots go down deeper into Christ and God and who he, I'm weaker, I'm undone, but his power becomes more real in my life. Don't hear me saying it's easy. Don't hear me saying I wake up and say, oh God, bring more tribulation. It happens. But this, no one ever says to me, Brad, that year that that I got three bonuses in a row. Oh, I grew like never before spiritually. (laughs) I've never heard that ever. I started a new diet, lost 40 pounds, changed my spiritual life. I was so happy. I got new outfits and oh, I was more like Jesus. No, when I lost my job, when I got prostate cancer, when my wife got breast cancer, when one of our kids went astray, when we faced that financial calamity, when, 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 these are the stories I hear. Adversity, the reason we must go through many is because he's left us here not just to have your best life now. The Bible doesn't teach that, folks. He wants to make you more like Christ now so that you will make a difference now while he's left you here. That's what's going on. I must decrease. He must increase. That decreasing and that increase usually happens in adversity when the dross, there's a lot of dross in Brad Bigney. God saves you, but there's still a bunch of mess. How's he going to begin to burn off some of this so that more what should be is there. Dross is usually burned off and edges are knocked off in a context of heat, adversity, hardship, suffering, trials. And he's not a bad dad that is punishing us. He's a good father who is committed to conforming us to the image of Christ. That's why Paul the apostle himself said in Romans 8, 28, He tells us what's going on. He doesn't say everything that comes into your life is good. He doesn't say that. He says, we know. He doesn't say, I think, I hope. I'm kind of fuzzy on it, but it seems like we know that all things work together. He does not say all things are good. Cancer is not good. Divorce is not good. Abuse is not good. All things work together for Good, And not just to everybody. To those who love him. And to those who are called according to his prayer. When he calls you to himself, he also calls you to a life of becoming more like Jesus. It's all together. Salvation and becoming more like Jesus are not two stages. And and I opt out for the becoming like Jesus. Because that's just kind of hard. If he saves you, you are on this path. And this is the curriculum now of becoming... Those who are called according to his purpose. If you grew up in the church like I did, you probably know that verse, Romans 8, 28. Well, all things work together for good. Don't ever quote Romans 8, 28 without 29. Verse 29 gives you a definition of good. Our definition of good is usually easy, fun, comfortable. Matches exactly what I would have done. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed 
to the image of his son. Jesus suffered. We will suffer. And it will help cause us to become more like him. See, some of what's going on today and has crept into the Christian camp, we live in a day that has begun to think all suffering is categorically bad and should be removed from my life. If I'm suffering, someone should help me know how to get rid of this. And oh, by the way, now I became a Christian. I already thought that way. And God's job now is to get hard stuff out of my life and give me what I want when I ask for it. So how am I doing this wrong? Tell me how to pray. I I don't understand. Like, I've been naming it and claiming it and it ain't happening. We think his job is to get hard stuff out of my life and give me what I want when I want it. Folks, basically your agenda and your motive for living hasn't changed at all. And you've just added God. You did not get that job description for God from the Bible. You got it from our culture. God never promised that that's what he was going to do. But we, and so in a sense, here's what's happened. I hope you realize we now in our culture here in America, which is still one of the best places to live, folks, by the way, it's still unbelievably comfortable compared to other places in the world. You're in the top percentage of comfort and ease and good things in life. We now have one of the wimpiest, softest, most undeveloped character people group that's ever walked planet Earth. If you think I'm being harsh... Secular cultural anthropologists are now writing this and saying this. Many non-Christians are now writing and saying this. They're saying our culture is the worst culture in the history of the world for equipping its people to know how to suffer well and move forward in life. People used to have a place for suffering. They understood, oh, it can help build honor, valor, character. People don't care about that at all. Now it's just, and people used to have greater tenacity and perseverance and character. You can trace, do you think we lack character in our culture? Lack tenacity, perseverance, I'll do a hard thing. Folks, you can trace that back to the moment that our culture decided and started drumming into us that here's what they've done. They've said the ultimate meaning in life is your happiness and the freedom to choose what I think will make me happy. That has now become the ultimate meaning in life. Thank you, Oprah, and so many others. You know, I just want to smack her when she goes around saying, don't ever settle for a job that's less than you love. Only do what you love. Oprah, shut up. There's a reason they pay you to work, because some of it's not fun. It's like, no, work is not fun. If it was totally fun and what I want to do, I'd do it for free. They pay you because it's hard. People used to just work. And that's like, well, well, I, I, I really want to, well, okay, see if someone wants to hire you to do that. It's like just our whole, co- don't do anything that doesn't match exactly what you think would make you happy. Hope this doesn't offend you. I'm not still here because I like everything about this job. <laughs> There's some really hard stuff. It was really hard to get this thing going also. Super duper hard. And, and, and on my worst days, I just have to remind myself, whoo, here's what I love doing. And I have the privilege of doing this and all this comes with it. Sometimes all this is you. <laughs> but not always, not every day. But it's like, this is part and parcel. So you lean in and you do what you need to do to the glory of God. And some of what you have to do every day you like, some of it's really hard. And you say, Lord, make me more like Jesus through it. You don't say, I got to get out of here. I got to find something that I love everything about it. I got to find something that's not so hard. People didn't use to think that way. Yes, read your Bible, but read books from dead people. Like right now, I'm reading the letters of John Newton. Does that name sound familiar? He wrote Amazing Grace. He was a great pastor. I'm reading the letters of John Newton to a, a pastor 35 younger, years younger than him. The same stuff that we go through was happening to them. Only worse. Babies and young children died all the time. All the time. Spouses died young so much more than today. And people got 
painful cancer and died painful deaths without the mind-numbing drugs we have today. And yet, Christians talked about it and responded to it so different than we do today. They still said, God is good. He's good. I don't understand. John Newton's wife just died last night. I mean, she's been dead, but for me, she died. I'm in my chair. She dies. I'm like, oh, poor man. They've been married 40 years. He loved her dearly. He said, oh my goodness, I loved her so much. I think it was idolatrous. She meant so much to me. She said she was the hinge in this world that I depended on. And yet he preached her funeral and then just went right on preaching, not because he didn't care, but because he said, God is good. I don't understand it, but he's good. And oh yes, he cried. And oh yes, he wrote young John Ryland and said, pray for me. I need your prayers. Get your whole church to pray for me. I cannot go on without the assistance of God, but know that God is good and I'm trusting him. What happened to that? We're in a culture now where people either run from it, pretend it's not happening or melt down in the midst of it. Just melt down, left and right. We have an epidemic of people who are angry, anxious, depressed, suicidal, and considering self-harm. And sadly, it's as much in the Christian camp as outside of the Christian camp that we're not responding to life well. We're responding to life in destructive ways Because I believe we do not understand the goodness of God and the sovereignty of God. And we do not understand the goal of God. His goal is to make us more like Jesus. The only way you'll respond well to hardship and adversity is if you understand his goal is not to make you as happy as you can be in this life. It's to make you like Jesus. And to frame it up against the backdrop of eternity. One of the reasons we're doing so poorly is we got too many Christians living for right here, right now. Right here, right now, like you're home. You're not home. This is temporary. When you hear Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, he uses the same word that we have for tribulation in Acts 14 in 2 Corinthians 4. And he says this, for our light affliction. You say, Paul, you don't even know what I'm going through. He would say back to you, I don't have to. Because it's, if it's happening in this life, it's light compared to you going to hell and burning forever. It's light and it's momentary for our light affliction, which is but for a moment. Divorce does not last forever. Grief over a lost one will not last forever. Grief over a death of a child will not last forever. Grief over health. The pain of cancer cannot last forever. This is temporary. And we have an eternity, an eternity, an eternity. And our biggest problem has been solved. It's light. It's momentary. And then he says this is working for us. We would say, it's against me. This marriage problem, this cancer, this job, it's against me. Oh, those things and people may be against you, but God is for you and is working in it for you to make you more like Jesus. And the only way you can have that perspective is what he says next in verse 18. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen, bad marriages, Rebellious kids, cancer, financial calamity are temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal. Some of you have got to frame up. Some of you stay so confused and so ready to quit the Christian life. And it's because your world is no bigger than right here, right now, and you've got a wrong goal. You don't understand God's goal and you do not have eternity as a backdrop to what you're going through. I'm not trying to be harsh, folks. I'm trying to help you. Because buying one of those best-selling books to figure out how you can just go first class all the time will not work. It doesn't work. This is the truth. And he will be with you in it. He will give you grace in your weakness. You'll experience his power. You'll become more like Christ. But you got to know his goal and submit to it. And you've got to keep eternity in place. The only way I know to do that is to read the Bible. 
I don't get that from Netflix. I don't get it from the NFL. I don't get it from the Discovery Channel or History Channel. The reason I read the Bible every day is not out of legalism, folks. Not to check a box and say, oh, God's going to bless me today. It's because it only takes me 24 hours to be completely off track in my thinking and discouraged and feeling overwhelmed. And this brings me back. It brings me back. It brings me back. It brings me back. It brings me back. Some of you are wondering why you're doing so poorly. And this just sits there. You say, oh, I'm not, I don't have time to read my Bible. You cannot not read your Bible. You must, you must. This refocuses me and changes my thinking and frames it up differently so that I can go forward and persevere. You say, all right, Brad, seems like you changed subjects in this sermon. Thought we were gonna talk about how to reach a pagan culture. Let me make the connection to you. Here's what's going on. Very few people now know the Bible. Very few people are sitting in a worship service today like you are. But when you as a Christian go through hardship and adversity and suffering and trials, not perfectly, but with a measure of grace and patience and joy, they don't have a category to put that in. Because their understanding is your ultimate purpose and meaning in life is happy and doing what you want. And now they realize that can't make you happy. That's not what you wanted. Oh my goodness, how do you... And you'll have people asking you a reason for the hope that is in you. That's what 1 Peter 3.15 said. Some of you, no one's asking. Because they don't see you doing any differently than them. You run. You melt down. You, you respond exactly like they would. Why should they inquire about the gospel that's powerful? Why should they inquire about following a suffering savior when they don't see you responding any differently to the hardship? One of the most powerful apologetics we can offer a lost and dying world is them seeing how we go through adversity and suffering differently. Not perfectly, but differently. It's powerful. It opens up conversations for Gospel and Jesus and eternity. But I want you to notice something else that's counterintuitive in this passage. Opportunities for ministry. I hope you want opportunities for ministry. You're like, I want my life to count. Where should I serve? What opportunities for ministry are often found in the midst of opposition? That's what you see going on in this passage. Did it strike you as odd at all? That verse two just got done saying, and the Jews stirred up the people and poisoned the minds of everyone against the Christians. And then verse three says, therefore, they stayed there a long time. What? We would have said, hey, let's go somewhere else where people have not already been skewed against us, where we weren't slandered, where there's not all this confusion. We can never do good ministry here. Folks. Opportunities are often found right in the midst of opposition. In fact, it's worth noting at the end of this chapter in verse 27, when they got back to Antioch, their sending church, and had a big night where they reported back to the church what God had done. Notice how they said, and they told the church, God has opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Here's how I hear Christians use that open door deal today. I only hear it, I shouldn't say only, almost only, hear it used because everything was so easy. Everything just fell into place. Oh, God opened the door. It just, oh. Now, can God do that? But can God open a door he wants you to go through? And when you go through it, it's really hard on the other side. Louder. Yes. Yes. Do not decide whether you think God called you through, quote, that door based on how easy it is to get through it or what you find when you get on the other side of it. These two things go together. In fact, if whatever you think God's called you to do, you're facing lots of resistance and opposition, you are probably doing the right thing and doing it in the right place. But just like with suffering, we have a culture in there where I hear Christians say, oh my goodness, I thought God had opened the door, but when I tried to do it, it was hard. I'm looking for a new opportunity because God obviously didn't open that door. 
Folks, whenever you begin to try to do anything significant for the kingdom, our enemy will rise up because he's not omnipresent. He can't be in all places at once. Who would you go for? The person who's doing nothing but watch Netflix to the glory of God with a Christian fishball cap? Leave him alone. He's doing nothing. Go for the person that just said, we'll lead a community group and all hell broke loose in their family. Go after the person who decided to start counseling and helping someone else. Go after the person who said, I'll teach a children's class. Go, 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 go. Go after people who went through a door they believe God had called them to an opportunity for ministry. Do not quit or second guess what God's called you to do based on There was opposition when when I got there. It was hard when I got there. Those of us that have led community groups for over decades now, please don't make the mistake. I guess every year their life is just cush. I hear people like, well, I think we need to step down from leading group because we're just going through. All of us are going through. We've kept leading a group while we had rebellious kids. We kept leading a group while I thought I was going to lose my mind with an ear condition that lasted eight years. We, we're leading a group now with my wife who can barely walk up our host stairs because she has transverse mellitus. I'm not complaining. I'm just telling you, if you're waiting and you're only going to serve God when you've got margin and everything's easy, you'll never serve God. The opportunities come in the midst of opposition and God will help you in your weakness in the midst of it then he gets the glory and you need him even more desperately than you would if you were on top of your game. It's a perfect time to serve God when you are in the midst of being undone to some degree by something. Because then there won't be too much of you in the way. Does that make sense? I've decided after 50 years, I've been a Christian almost 50 years now, that I'm a better pastor, better husband, better father as I do what I do with a limp and lean into everything from a posture of weakness, 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 weakness makes you more effective. And how do you get, it's usually adversity, hardship, suffering, trials. Don't head for the bench and say, oh, until all this settles down, we're just not going to serve. You could serve really effectively. Opportunities often come in the midst of opposition. That's why Paul the Apostle talked the same way. This passage is no more odd what Luke is saying. Oh, they stirred it up. They poisoned them. Therefore, we stayed a long time boldly preaching the gospel. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 16, every year when I read through the Bible, I'm like, oh my goodness, look at that. He says, I will stay on at Ephesus because a great and effective door has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. What? Instead of, and everyone loves us. And they said, please give me a Bible. Give me colored pencils. Preach some more. Even this report that they give in verse 27 of our chapter, where they said, and they reported to the church what God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. They don't even mention, yeah, and some of those Gentiles stoned Paul and tried to kill him. They still saw it as a great door of opportunity. That had been open for the Gentiles. Some believed. Some tried to kill him. But they didn't say. Oh wow. That's not God. God didn't open that door. Because look what happened to us on the other side. Opportunities and opposition. Are often found in the same place. Same place. Well let me bring it back to Jesus as we close. Yes. We're going to face opposition. And yes. We must through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. But folks, the opposition and the tribulations that we face in this life pale in comparison to how Jesus suffered for us. As a Christian, you'll face opposition from unbelievers. You'll face opposition maybe from believers, but you'll never taste the wrath of God. No, you're not condemned. You're not experiencing the wrath of God. Jesus experienced the wrath of God and drank it dry for us. We'll never suffer in any way like what Jesus suffered for 
us. And so now Christianity has the best approach to suffering in this life. We have a Savior who suffered for us ultimately in a way that now redeems our suffering. That it's never meaningless. There's always purpose to it. Even if you don't get an email that explains it to you from God. There's purpose and meaning. It's been redeemed. And that's why Jesus, he understood this as well. When he was with his disciples, he turned to them because there was constant confusion about who he was and said, who do you say that I am? Some were saying, he's John the Baptist raised from the dead. He's a good teacher. He's this, he's that. And Peter said, you are the Christ. That's Messiah, sent one. Everything in the Old Testament was talking about, you're it. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And he said, Peter, you're right. And flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my father, but he didn't stop. He knew there, there was still massive confusion even among his disciples. What did the Messiah come to do? Because they're just like us. They thought he came to make life easy, to throw out the Romans, to set up a kingdom, to have us rule with him, to make us. And so that's why he went on to say this. For the son of man, Luke 9, must suffer Many things from the scribes and elders and priests and be killed and the third day rise again. Do you hear two words that are the same two words that were in our chapter? Must and many. But his suffering was beyond anything we'll ever face. Oh, if you're here and you're an unbeliever, I'm so glad you're here. Come to Christ. He died for you. He suffered for you. He paid the price for your sin. And when you come to Christ, it will not just change how you suffer. It will change how you see everything in this life. Come to Christ. I'm not asking you to be religious. I'm saying give your life to Christ who died for you. And Christian... Oh, if you're here and you're a believer, step into the open doors and don't second guess or quit when you get through there and find opposition and adversity and adversaries in your weakness. His strength is made perfect. He would love to use you in the midst of that. Oh, God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you that we can cry out to you in prayer day and night. Thank you that you've given us everything necessary to life and godliness. And oh, how we thank you for Jesus. Oh, how we thank you that everything, everything right now is temporary, temper, light and temporary and for us, for us, for us, because you are for us. Use us. For your glory, in our weakness, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.